Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode seven, recorded Thursday, October the 12th, 2017. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Betrayal Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. In this episode, we will be speaking with June Bradham, Vice President, Strategic Consulting, Blackbaud Healthcare Solutions, Arla Gustafson, CEO of the Royal University Hospital Foundation in Saskatoon, Yvonne Chenier, QC, a charitable tax lawyer from Calgary, and Nicholas Offord. President, the Offered Group in Toronto. Today's topic is nonprofit leadership. How can the fundraiser be a bold leader? Leadership is an important topic in the not for profit sector and in the for profit sector. Professional fundraisers are expected to demonstrate strong organizational and sector leadership. We will be discussing some of the ways they can and should be doing just that. Join us as we discuss this topic and much more. Coming up next on Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We have four terrific guests with us today. It's going to be a really great discussion. I can't wait. Joining us from Charleston, South Carolina, we have June Brown. June, I first got to meet you in person at the AFP conference in Banff. You and Simone Joyou stayed with my business partner, Andrea McManus, while you were here. I'm curious, how did you and Andrea first meet? Oh, goodness, we've known each other for years, but we actually met through the Association of Fundraising Professionals. Um, and, of course, Andrea climbed to be the wonderful president of that organization, and I was on the board. So um, we had great opportunity to interact, and she's one of my favorite people. Well, that's awesome. I didn't realize that uh, that you had been on, on, on the board uh, alongside her, so that's good to, to, to know. And how... So you've known her for a few years. Yes, probably mm, at least 15 or 20, perhaps. Oh, okay. Awesome. <laughs> almost, <laughs> almost as long as I've known Nicholas. Um, thank, thanks thanks you for that, June, and, and, and welcome to the, to, to the podcast. Also joining us this morning is uh, from Saskatoon, we have Arla Gustafson. Um, Arla is well known to both my business partners, but I only met Arla a year ago when I visited the AFP Saskatoon chapter to give a luncheon talk. Arla was gracious enough to take me on a tour of the Royal University Hospital, where she is the CEO of the foundation. It was a fantastic tour, not least of which because I got to spend the afternoon with Arla. Arla, welcome to the podcast. I'm curious, when I was last there, they were hard at work building the new Saskatchewan Children's Hospital. How's that going? Well, they're still building the Saskatchewan Children's uh, Hospital. This has been a um, long-term vision for the province, and uh, it is expected to open in late 2019. It is attached to the Royal University Hospital, and uh, which is a 63-year-old facility, and uh, it will expand our footprint significantly. Now, this is a children's hospital for the entire province of Saskatchewan? It is a children's hospital, yes, for the entire province. 
though there still is uh, children's services delivered in other hospitals across the province, but this will be the the provincial hospital for PICU and uh, more, um, you know, definite specialties. That's great. Long needed. Thanks for the update, Arla. Thank you. Joining us from right here in Calgary, we have Yvonne Chenier. Yvonne, your reputation as a leader in Canadian charity and charity tax law is legendary. I know that you sit on the, the technical issues working group, I hope I got that right, for the Canada Revenue Agency with my business partner, Andrea McManus, and I know that you've been practicing law for many years. I, I am I'm curious, though, when did you decide to make your focus on charity and charity tax law, or, or has it always been that way, and, and why? I think it's been a progression. You know, you start as a young lawyer dealing with clients who are being successful at business, who then uh, need to invest their money. And, you know, smart investors eventually turn to philanthropy for in- impact investing um, in, the, in our using their social capital. And then when, when that happens, then you get to look at the inner workings of charities and not-for-profit organizations. And I realized very early in my career, uh, probably 20 years ago, that these organizations need legal help to make them more welcoming to philanthropists who want to who want to give money to them. So it's a, it was a natural progression, and it's the very best area of law to practice in because it's always uplifting. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned in the in the in the off podcast uh, commentary that some law conferences were perhaps not as uplifting. That is correct. Is that, yes. So, so you, you're looking for always, <laughs> Yeah, lawyers are always looking for what can go wrong, and, and mm-hmm. in the charity area, I'm always looking at what could go right with some more money and more legal help. So it's great. That's a fantastic observation. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, I'm glad you're able to. You said um, when we were doing some of the, the prep work for this podcast that you, I think this is your exclusive focus right now? Oh, it is. It has been for yeah. many years, yes. Yeah. Charities well, are a sort of thing. Well, we're glad to have you. Thanks for sharing, Yvonne, and welcome. Last but not least, joining us from Toronto, we have Nicholas Offord. Nicholas and I have known each other for almost as long as I've been a fundraiser. We we usually run into each other at conferences and at AFP leadership events, and I have very fond mem- I have a very fond memory of Nicholas speaking at the AFP Executive Leadership Institute session at York University almost 20 years ago. We won't go into that today, but uh, this is just a, a really fond memory and, and a, a great impression from Nicholas. Nicholas, welcome. Thank you, Nicholas. You recently served as the chair of the, the Canada New Horizons Transition Task Force. It's a bit of a mouthful, but um, it's, it's got all the right words in it. The, uh, the job of this task force was to, to help put into place for the first time in Canadian history an official body representing Canadian fundraisers on the world stage. That body has now been, been formalized as the AFP Canada Board of Directors. And uh, in November, our November podcast will focus on this new, new board with, with Scott Dexheimer and Christian Mehta and others joining us. Uh, thank you for, for chairing this task force. You, you concluded that role, I think, over a year ago or somewhere in that time period. I'm just wondering, do you, have you had a chance to sort of think back? What are your thoughts on the outcomes and the future of this body? Well, the, uh, 
you know, the, fu the future of the uh, profession in Canada is uh, uh, absolutely uh, dependent upon having a distinctive Canadian voice, uh, and with uh, particularly with the regulatory bodies. But I also think that um, there are some unique challenges within Canada itself with respect to particularly uh, our topic today, the development of leadership for charities uh, for the next generation and how do we effectively uh, prepare people for for leadership roles. And uh, I think that's a bit, always been a, dis, a, a very key focus of the discussion of uh, the particular challenge within the Canadian context. And uh, uh, I think, uh, you know, we can look forward to some some changes over the next few years and some opportunities with respect to uh, building a uniquely uh, Canadian uh, agenda around those challenges. Thanks, Nicholas. Uh, again, thank you for, for doing that work and, and thanks for that insight. Um, thank you all for, for joining us on this, our, our seventh podcast. We're excited to hear from you all. Today's topic is uh, nonprofit leadership. How can the fundraiser be a bold leader? Leadership has and, and continues to be an important topic in the nonprofit sector. Many of the organizations in our sector are led by someone who is not a professional fundraiser. Is, is this an issue? Uh, should more of our nonprofit CEOs have a background in professional fundraising? Or is it as it should be? No matter where you stand on these questions, professional fundraisers are expected to demonstrate strong organizational and sector leadership. What are some of the ways they can and should be doing just that. June, let's start with you. Yeah, well, it's, I appreciate that because it's, um, it's my personal passion is leadership. And um, it seems to me that anytime you have the leadership right, the rest of it can go right. I think there's a real difference between a change leader and a change manager. And uh, so depending on what appetite for bold is. Um, to me, if it's a change leader, they're going to want to uh, do disruptions to really make transformational change, whereas a change manager is going to want to follow a process as opposed to making progress. Um, and a you know, change manager is going to want as few disruptions as possible. So um, it seems to me that the organization really has to decide or maybe that leader has to decide which kind of leader are they going to be. Um, that's my initial thought. That's about. an interesting approach. That idea about disruption is a big part of leadership. What about well, what are the thoughts from know, some? Go ahead. No, please let them go ahead. Just curious. Did anybody have any any thoughts on what June had to say there? I th I uh, believe and I appreciate what June said around the disruption um, sort of pathway because and I'm going to just step back for a second because as the CEO of the um, a hospital foundation, fundraising is our primary role, but yet there is a lot of community engagement and a lot of uh, uh, work within the hospital to bring people into understanding, you know, how we can advance the whole agenda. And sometimes the disruption agenda uh, is necessary and uh, has been, I think, the most effective in getting people to understand how change can happen because I think large systems don't 
work very easily around uh, be nimble. And if you are going to make a change, you actually have to step uh, very boldly forward. All right. We got bold in there. We got disruption. Well, I think... Uh, Go ahead, Nicholas. I, I, th- I think one of the great challenges is that there's often a very great emphasis on experience and technical skills in our industry, um, which is uh, right and appropriate in most circumstances, but it's not effective preparation for uh, for, be- for being a change agent. Um, <laughs> and, and, I, and I think we really haven't... Um, Really prepared, particularly professionals, whether they're coming from from inside the sector or people coming outside the sector, uh, for the broader cultural challenges of the uh, of the charitable sector, which I uh, will aver uh, that are fundamentally conservative in terms of uh, risk management and ability to. Engage in in strategies that, when you lose the word disruptive, imply a certain degree of risk to the organization. And I and I and I just wonder how how ready some people are from going from technical and and professional expertise to working in a more um, dynamic environment with many variables, executive dynamics, institutional politics. Um, and and you know return on investment questions uh, that are inevitably arise out of any change management strategy. There's no in institutional politics in the sector, is there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I said, well, you make a good point. I mean, I think people, you know, a- as one moves up an organization. Uh, things become less clear, not more clear. That that there are more choices to be made, and having clear criteria around how do you make those choices is a, a fundamental aspect of uh, being a leader. It's why uh, why people get paid money more uh, more as leaders. It's because they, you know, at the, the end of the day, they have to make the call, and the call isn't always a black and white question. Yvonne, I'm curious. You've you've you you've talked about um, the fact that uh, one of the reasons that you have really focused in, in into your current um, uh, focus around charity and charity law um, and tax law associated with that was was working with folks who who wanted to make a difference. Donors, uh, I'm assuming. Um, how do they feel about disruption? Well, some of them are disruptors in their own right, and that's how they right. made their money. So, yeah. that's, so, so they that's might appreciate it. Have, <laughs> so you have a fine balance when you've got someone who's been very disruptive in their own life to make their money and and uh, now wants to turn to, you know, a, making a change in, in a social way. And then they look to the sector and they go, let me impose my way and they see they don't see uh, things happening the way business happen they see they they meet the fundraiser potentially and maybe the fundraiser is not the decision maker in the organization but 
the fundraiser may be the person they they have the the relationship with, and they they look to the fundraiser to be bold and and moving their agenda forward and and making the change in the organization. And uh, but interestingly, yeah, Arla, go ahead. Sorry, thanks, but interestingly, thanks, I, I, and I I I um see where Yvonne's saying and most likely they they do meet the fundraiser but yet often from the business side looking in they're looking to the organization to not take risks and to be very accountable for their donation and ensure that the donation is there and the impact is there so sometimes you know I think there is right away that disconnect about what could be done if organizations uh, stepped out more and you know that's one of the pieces that I'm interested in is how can we sort of raise the bar and not try to be so um, cautious as it relates to the business that's accomplished um, within right. the organization. Yeah, and, and I thought about this question as we prepared for the podcast, you know, how can the fundraiser be a bold leader? So that's the fundraiser mm-hmm. that's meeting the people who want to make the change. And, you know, my thoughts were that a fundraiser is a professional just like any other professional in the organization, like the human rights manager, the CEO, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the ones that are doing the, the actual programming, they're all professionals in their own right. So if if they consider themselves leaders in their profession, the fundraisers, then they can make bold statements about the knowledge they have and the experience they have as fundraisers interacting with donors at potentially at the boardroom table or at senior management level, but still listening to other leaders in the organization. You know, these are the people that may not want to take risks. And uh, a bold leader finds a way, I think, as a fundraiser to listen to what the concerns are and find a way to interject or inject sort of the... I won't call it the change management because, you know, I, I actually have read you in your piece and, and I agree that it's it's more of a leadership focus that needs to happen. And I'm thinking thinking around my experience around the boardroom tables would be a collaboration of leadership. Mm-hmm. And the fundraiser is one of those leaders at the table. And a bold one is one who knows his or her place as a leader. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, it's interesting. I was just with a very large hospital system, and the CEOs of those systems now are having to innovate. They have to have alternative revenue sources. And uh, there was a group of foundational leaders in the room, and he was presenting the strategic plan. When it came to philanthropy, it was actually not in the strategic plan. And, of course, these people asked about that, and his response was, you have to find a way to innovate. So what I want you to do is get good yourself, and then I want you to figure out a way to have a product that you're going to sell to others. So that was a pretty revolutionary instruction from a CEO of a very large system. So I'm wondering if, you know, healthcare is kind of ahead of that curve um, by necessity in the United States, for sure. Um so I just wonder if we're going to see more of that. I mean, certainly donors are asking us to not do the same thing the same way over and over again. So um, 
just a thought with an interesting experience. So are you saying, June, that the the CEO is saying everyone around the table has to go out and get fundraising skills? Uh, no. What he was saying, this was a uh, a conference where all of the heads were found. I think there are 176 foundations within this system. They were all there to hear the the, CEO, the seniors, the biggest CEO of the whole system, um, the strategic plan of the system. And what he was saying to them was he was demanding of every group, every uh, division of that system, to have innovation in their plan. And that was his suggestion for innovation from the philanthropy group, that they had to find a way to not only raise more money, but to have um, revenue centers as well beyond philanthropy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a bold that was big and bold. <laughs> well, it's creating also business. It's creating a business stream. Yeah. 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 And I'm yeah. going to throw that back at you. Is that the role of a fundraiser in the organization? <laughs> no. It has not been traditionally, but I just think, you know, when you talk about bold leadership, um, and that was a recent directive to 175 philanthropy leaders, I, you know, we could all debate that it is it the role. I just am not sure if, if uh, there will be more demand for, uh, if not bold, uh, maybe as everybody on this call has alluded to, certainly very smart and nimble leadership within the philanthropy leader. Well, there certainly has been a shift uh, in, in uh, the role of philanthropy in in uh, in the sector, um, I, it I, I've observed uh, that that sense as the as the the more disruptive business leaders are rising to the fore as being strong uh, donors and philanthropists in their own right. They're bringing their ideas and thoughts from their own disruptive businesses uh, more firmly into the fold. That idea about impact investing, I think you talked about that. You mentioned that yourself, Yvonne. Mm-hmm. Um, is is uh, I don't think like it's not necessarily a new idea, but it's one that's got more traction in the marketplace, certainly, and uh, and has, has become a huge deal with folks. So that idea about the philanthropy is more than uh, uh, you know love of humankind. It's it's also what's your revenue center? I'm throwing that out there for people to disagree well, or agree, but that's been my observation. Well, well, well he, here's the problem. I th- I think there is. Magic in the role of fundraisers, uh, being creative and driving the creative process uh, with philanthropists who who are agents of change and um, uh, want a big idea. Um, that is countered by institutions that say, "Well." Uh, Yes, we want you to be innovative around fundraising, but we want you to generate more unrestricted money so that we can mm-hmm. pay more <laughs> overhead. Uh, and so there is a, an innate conflict with the the, the 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 creative dynamic of particularly transformational level philanthropy and the ability of institutions to respond uh, in kind and be a uh, focused on mission. And and I think for many donors, 
uh, uh, as one said to me, uh, it's easier to start a new charity than change an old one. And I think oh no! <laughs> yeah. And this is the, this is the core problem we have mm-hmm. is that um, you know there is an awful lot of inertia in organizations uh, about doing things traditional ways, and um, and that may be appropriate in some circumstances, uh, but you know this notion that somehow we can magically create a new approach to creating. Revenue that's going to drive people for an old story uh, is a bit of mythology in my in my mind, or at least a, you know that's one perspective on that. Mm-hmm. What are some other perspectives on that? I don't agree. Go ahead. Is this you, Yvonne? Yeah, I agree with with Nicholas, and and I would just interject that the the legal framework we deal with in the business community that allows disruption and innovation. Uh, is not there in the the uh, charitable sector yet. In and Canada, not likely in the United for a long time. That's a huge policy shift that I know there are some people pushing that agenda and that they may prevail in the end, but it's, uh, it's a different legal framework we deal with than in the So, business. Yvonne, about 15 years ago, I was part of the CRA beginning to look at changes, and I know that that process continues to go forward and and over that 15 years, not a lot of, um, you know, like change. It's very slow and cautious. But um, at that point, we were talking about the ability to have, you know, um, do people recall a author, I think his last name was Steckel, Richard Steckel? Filthy Rich and Other Not-for-Profit Fantasies. And it was about... <laughs> and I I love the title, and um, I think I heard him quite a few years ago. It was a great book, but it was at a point where the CRA was considering opening the door for the the for-profit side of not-for-profits that would allow for the bold leadership, uh, you know, taking um, social business out into the community and being able to have profit sides. And I think that faded quite a bit, <laughs> and I know it's starting to be talked about again. Mm-hmm. We have a so lot of that is. in the United States, I would say, that, that there are, um, you know, locally there's a wonderful community organization that um, is highly respected and they um, they do have charitable investment and a lot of foundation investment, but they have earning power by recreating a community and having the people there, you know, redo the homes, redo the schools, providing jobs. And so it's a good economic model. Um, so I think it does exist in pockets, but I would agree with the group that it, the appetite for boldness uh, is really not there. And I would, I would have to say that not only the not-for-profit leader, but that a lot of that rests with non-bold board members who, and we all, this is not a new idea, who take off their business hat when they walk in the not-for-profit boardroom. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with with you more. I I I I I, uh, I often like you lead board retreats, and uh, one of the questions I ask is, uh, you know, how how do you make decisions as a board about the kind of risk that you want in an or, in your organ? How much how much investment are you prepared to to make in innovation, uh, and 
how long are you prepared to wait before it shows a yield and a return? Mm-hmm. And, um, and most boards really don't have those conversations at all. And I think, uh, you know, if, if, if we could encourage uh, boards to really go there in their minds and say, well, you know, if the organization were to look different, uh, what would that look like and uh, how would it play out and and what would be our, our risk tolerance around that? And uh, I, don't, I don't know that it's a question of uh, always leaving their brains at the door. I think sometimes it's a question of they believe that the rules around board governance at charities are somehow different than they are at uh, in in the corporate world and and uh I you know I've struggled with various uh, dynamics uh around that but uh it it is a a vital question because uh it is very hard to be a bold leader if your board uh, says well what happens if it goes wrong mm-hmm. well I would also the door is opened the, for you yes that's what happens yeah yeah that well that's a great point you know um yeah I think it's skin in the game. Um, you know, if, if you're a nonprofit volunteer leader, you know, it takes some real skin in the game to be bold. It's much easier to be well-liked and kind of get along and go along and and do your bit without shaking things up. Read. Inertia. Um yeah, I, I I heard the comments about that uh, it would be nice if they were able to bring um, what they do in their business world into the room. But I also, you know, I, I find it interesting that we sometimes forget what Yvonne said earlier, or I, I forget it anyway, that, uh, that uh, there's very different legal frameworks, which maybe that's a little bit of what's at play. Um, is, it, is it like when people say they're, they're completely different? In some ways, they are. Or aren't they? It, they they are different, and there's a, there's a lack of actual factual knowledge about what the difference is, and and often board board members are reluctant to ask the questions because they don't want to look dumb. And there's in my experience with the boards I work with, there's not a lot of onboarding um, work. That this is the framework you are now in. This is these are the parameters you're working with. This is what we do. You know, they come. People just assume that they're somehow going to walk through that door and know all this stuff, and they don't. So they they just act funny because they don't understand and they don't want to ask questions. And no one's feeding them the answers. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 I do this. I, when I start working with organizations, I often ask sometimes even the CEO or the chair of the board, do you know the legislation that you are incorporated under that has created your organization? And you'd be surprised how many don't know that. Well, that is an interesting journey for our foundation, um, becoming an Imagine Canada um, accredited organization. Really um, had us start to look at all of those points. And I would say our board is a lot more aware of the legislation than it ever was before. And I've been here for 10 years. So the last five years has been a real journey as it relates to that. So that is an added benefit. You know, one other thing that that uh, is happening 
I think in leadership is, and I think maybe all of you kind of alluded to this um, early on about um, the skill set of a particular leader, um, be a, in, in this case a philanthropy leader, but the word that's being tossed around a lot are two words that are being tossed around a lot, and I'd be curious if you're seeing this, is the dyad leadership and the triad leadership. So um, dyad is, for instance, a um, a medical, the chief of medical mm-hmm. offices would be partnered with a, a medicine person and a business person. So they'd, they'd be like a co-chair, for lack mm-hmm. of a better term. And I'd be curious about, I've been sort of thinking about the problem in large organizations sometimes with philanthropy leaders who are not, don't have, quote, unquote, a seat at the decision-making table and wondering if for these bold philanthropy leaders if it could become a triad leadership. So there would be the CEO, perhaps, and the either the program officer or the CFO and the philanthropy leader as top kind of a triad leadership, which would be equally as hard as doing collaboration. But um, but it's just, I'd love to know if, if any of you have been thinking about that. Well, yeah, I think it's, I think you raise a good point. Um, and, and we see the sort of mixed models of leadership in various uh, organizations. I, I actually, I actually uh, encourage uh, uh some of these leaders to actually think a bit differently about uh, leadership role. And I, th- I think many of them are overly uh, deferential uh, to board and executive leadership um, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of uh, uh, say, well, you know, my, my, my job is to be the servant of the organization and not to be the uh, the advocate of the voice of the community uh, 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 in terms of philanthropy. So um, I think uh, part of the challenge here is, is, is getting people to get out of the mindset always that uh, I am simply the servant of and no, you're paid to be a leader and, and exert leadership at the, in the C-suite uh, uh, in, in some really complicated uh, leadership dynamics, uh, as you say. Um, but you know, be a, a voice and uh, and and not always defer to uh, uh, you know other other strong leaders uh, within within an organizational dynamic. Be they board leaders, uh, donors, uh, institutional executives, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, you you have a mandate to to be the voice for. Uh, what is going to be mo- most in the interests of your institution from a philanthropic standpoint, and you have to have the courage uh, to, to to articulate your views at at the C-suite table, and and not always doing the shuttle diplomacy behind the scenes. So it's a, a subtlety of what you're saying, but a reality for a lot of us who work uh, in these multi in these very complex institutions. Thank you, Nicholas. Arla, I'm curious if you have some thoughts on what June 
um, put out there in terms of whether you've been thinking about things like that or have had those experiences? You know, it was interesting because yesterday, Saskatchewan's going through a, a move to um, a integrated uh, provincial health care model. And in the 90s, we moved into regions and now we're going provincially for reasons that I'm sure somebody knows. Um, but yesterday, we had an opportunity to bring uh, foundation leadership together from across the province to have our first meeting with the new CEO of the Saskatchewan Health Authority, which doesn't come into being until December 4th. So at that day, switch will be turned, but probably not a lot will change. But the whole dyad and triad uh, model is uh, part of what um, the flow chart looks like. And as philanthropy leaders and, you know, foundations that raise about $40 million a year in the province for health care, our role and how we um, have a voice at that table is is one that we're very concerned about. And our conversation in beginning and the importance of having a role at the table and how do you take foundations from across the province and, and be that voice at that senior leadership table is something that we will be moving forward on. And, and uh, I think the follow-up to that, what it will look like in a year will be interesting, but I think it's really critical to have um, more than one leader as it relates to the, the voice at that table. So mm-hmm. the dyad, triad. Great mm-hmm. point. It'll be interesting. Well, while you were talking, I was going, oh, I don't envy you. But then I thought, actually, I do. I think it's going to be exciting times um, in the province. So if, if, they, if they really, there's an opportunity for change. For sure. There is. There absolutely is. That's great. And we will go boldly forward. <laughs> <laughs> Yvonne, you, you, you... Go ahead. Who's, who's that, June? No, just a quick quick comment on that. I think the, the challenge for the seat at the table, from what I hear from CEOs of all organizations, not the philanthropy CEOs, but the, but the organizational CEOs, is that what they need is to be able to count on a steady stream of philanthropy to be able to put it in to their strategy. Yes. And um, and that, of course, flies in the face of good practices for philanthropy, <laughs> in a way. Um, so that, you know, that probably it has a lot to do with whether or not the philanthropy leader is at the table. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I think it is a well, I'd rather, it is a I'd rather sit on a, I'd rather sit on a three-legged stool than a two-legged stool. You know, uh, uh, Yvonne, uh, we oftentimes look for uh, what might be the title of the podcast. <laughs> so, uh, I, I'm sorry, but that 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 is uh, that is not, I'm not sorry. That is striking me as that that might become the the title. I'd rather sit on a three-legged stool well, than a two. And, and it and it's wonderful. It just plays into what I said about the philanthropist that has dealings with the fundraiser the professional fundraiser in the organization. And right. it would be the organizational fundraiser, not the CEO kind of fundraiser. And and the answer to the philanthropist question is, well, I have to check with, I have to check with, you know, my my other, my board, my senior manager, whatever. Whereas if it's the triad leadership, the three-legged stool, the philanthropist is at the table and is just one of three decision makers in this example. And right. Said, yes, you know, my colleagues and I are going to meet on this, and 
you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go to bat for this idea. Sounds right. a lot better than I have to check with. Yeah. Yeah. Nicholas, you were, you were going to weigh in with something, I think. Uh, Sorry, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I thought you had no, something no, to no. Say. I, I think, I think, I think it's been well said. I think you know, you know, it's a catch twenty two. Often is that, uh, you know, the, I actually think that the fundraisers uh, are actually very good at seeing opportunity with donors, uh, but this notion that somehow they don't have the the power to really deliver on on on, on the agenda, um, you know, is is a confidence problem for donors uh, generally and uh, you know we you know we've seen some work done around uh, the uh, what drives sort of 10 million dollar gifts say and clearly you have to have both the chief development officer and the CEO at the table to negotiate those things but the real work behind the scenes with the donor is you're largely getting done uh, by the, the chief development officer, um, and I, you know, I think there are probably, uh, as I said before, um, you know, more ten million dollar donors than ten million dollar ideas uh, in the marketplace. <laughs> it's an interesting approach. I hadn't thought about it that way. I think I agree with you. Um, I, June brought up a. Uh, an emerging trend that she's seeing around uh, some of the organizational structures in leadership. I'm wondering if there are some other emerging trends that we have observed or are curious about in in leadership in the in the sector um, overall. What are some of the trends that, that that people have been noticing with respect to leadership? Hmm. You know, I guess. Uh, are we? Are, are, pause, go ahead, it? Arla. It's an awkward pause because, you know, I'm I'm really looking to our community, and I've been spending some time thinking of this and emerging trends in leadership. I've not seen anything really that gave me spark or gave me pause. Right. Um, I, and that maybe is where I'm at right now, or. You know, I'm I'm hoping for more for those that are coming through the system, and um, I'd be really excited to. You know, none of us jumped in on that, and that that's a little worrisome. Yeah, I think I think one of the big trends that I'm seeing is that there, and and this is maybe perhaps more true in the university sector than than other sectors, but uh, certainly. Um, Certainly, in in the institutional sector, uh, there is a desire to have someone who has sophistication, knowledge uh, around uh, contributing to the broader uh, C-suite conversation, uh, rather than just being a fundraising specialist. So, I think the the notion that somehow one can go from being, you know, a major gifts officer to being uh, uh, an executive uh, is becoming more problematic, and and that search committees are looking for people with uh, well-rounded skills, uh, management capacities, executive experience, uh, rather than just straight-on fundraising credentials. That's a that that that's been the case in the for-profit sector for a long time, 
Uh, and I think know, to get that is the not-for-profit also. Like, well, every posting I've ahead. seen has looked for all of that, as well as fundraising, right? Right. So I, I guess I, management. Yeah. I guess what I wanted to be clear about, that uh, that was, that's not a trend in my view in the for-profit sector. No. That's a fact. Um, and mm-hmm. so to get into the C-suite at, at a major corporation in Canada, um, just being a great engineer or a great accountant is, is not enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so those that are on that track are very uh, intentional about uh, growing their, their, their experiences and their career. And the people that are managing or, or helping them coach through that track are also very intentional about that. You know, I've had people come to me as a consultant going, we have a senior manager that is potentially a vice president at the bank in a few years. They need to get some board experience in the community. Can you give us some recommendations? Yeah. Uh, well, even, even, you know, I, I, I referenced this earlier on with my reference to AFP. The question is, is, you know, how are we effectively preparing people for those roles? And, um, you know, a good part of my uh, my my business is in the in in coaching executives to success. Um, but when it comes to the opportunities in the marketplace for someone to go to uh, uh, business schools, uh, study strategy, study leadership, study change management. Um, Really, I see very, very few institutions uh, investing in second-tier leaders in their organization to prepare them for that kind of uh, executive role in the future. And so I think we're very under-invested in terms of capacity building uh, around executive leadership. You know, one of the things that I've experienced over more, I don't know why, more significantly in the last three years, but it's been working with business school boards um, at universities. And you would think that business school boards would have natural leadership in the philanthropy world. Um, but there, you know, what they did do was have a dean who had a bold vision. And, of course, philanthropy would have to follow that. And in order for that to work, he needed his board to be better. Um, more focused. And so I would say on that, it takes uh, a dream that other leaders can buy into and they will change their behavior um, and sometimes change themselves, either off or on the board, um, to be able to make ambitious projects happen. Um, So to me, in a way, there has to be a reason to change. And there has to be a bold leader who gives you that reason. Either that's a board leader or a staff leader. Um, and, Someone and who can crystallize can the dream. Mm-hmm. Someone who can crystallize the dream. There has to be a reason. I mean, it's kind of like the book of board shoulds drives me crazy. Um, because half the time we just tell them what they should be doing, but we don't tell them why. And to me, that happens with staff as well. Right. Uh, Yvonne or, or Arla, did you have uh, any comments before I, I move to, to wrap it up? Nothing more from my end. The, On uh, the leadership uh, thing, I mean, I in the sector, I, I still just see hit and miss in board members. 
you know, who's mm-hmm. available, who who can we appoint. I don't really have a lot of comment about the senior management, you know, among right. the staff of the sector, but, um, you know, boards sort of are a necessary evil because of the legal framework that, that, that the sector has to operate in, so we need bodies. And my, uh, your comment about who's available made me actually shiver. Yeah. Oh, that's true. I know, but I... A lot of strategy it, here. Yeah. It feels like a horrible way to recruit. Mm-hmm. But that's yeah. how some have to. I'm not... The, the big sophisticated organizations, I think, are probably more strategic about about yeah. it. But then some have government appointments. You know, how strategic mm-hmm. can that be? Uh, and small, fledgling organizations um, have different... Uh, you know, what do they have to offer? So there's, there's all sorts of issues there. That sounds like I a, hope in, an entire... Go ahead. I was going to say, I hope in five years we might be talking about uh, this topic and we might be using the word artificial intelligence in the same sentence as board members. <laughs> That's great. Well, we did do a, a, an artic- a couple of podcasts that touched on that, and I actually think that board recruitment and that whole topic is a fantastic podcast idea. Um, we, we've had a great discussion, uh, you know, it, 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 everything from that, that, that perennial tension between, uh, conservatism and the idea that you want to be disruptive as a, as a leader. Um, I, I love these ideas that June, you brought up about the, the new leadership modes, the dyads and triads. And I, I really do think, Yvonne, that we might end up using the three-legged stool comment. Um, and then, uh, this, this, you know, I, I, I found the pause interesting about the trends. So I think that's something that, uh, you know, we, maybe it doesn't have to have trends in leadership, but it's interesting there was a pause. But um, I want to I want to thank you all for for helping us with this huge topic. Uh, we obviously needed to schedule a few more podcasts on leadership. Um, you've been great guests, uh, Arla, Yvonne, Nicholas, June. I hope we can have each of you back on the podcast. We'd love we'd love that. Uh, before we go, I want each of you to have a chance to tell us a little bit more about what you're working on or. What's 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 uh, what's taking your time and energy, and where people can reach you? And June, I know you have to step off in a few minutes, so we're going to start with you. Anything you want our listening audience to know? Um, yeah, so uh, I have just uh, posted a um, white paper on what I call the new uh, new dynamic of board leadership, which brings me to mind as with this discussion. It's on NP Engage on the BlackBod.com. Uh, website, so it's a new standard. It's also on LinkedIn. Um, we'll put, we'll put it in the show notes. We'll yeah, the show notes. That, you know, and so what we talk about there, um, if you want to read it, it, uh, it would help greatly, I think, in the recruitment, identification, evaluation of board members. Um, so as far as artificial intelligence goes, of course, I'm with BlackBot, which is the largest uh, fundraising software uh, firm in the world, and um, we are here to do social good, and part of that art is now artificial intelligence, which we actually can help organizations with in identifying and qualifying people, not just for their wealth, but for many other characteristics. Um, so I am excited to be with you. You can reach me at june.bradham at blackbod.com. Thank you, June. We'll put a link to that paper in our show notes. Nicholas, right. thank you. what do you want people to uh I'm going to hop off June? here. Thank you June, so June, much. Thank you, was, thank you, thank you. It was a pleasure to be with all of you. Thank you. Thank you, June.
Well, I, Nicholas? I, I, su- I suppose my message would be to, uh, to, to, to the, to boards and, uh, CEOs of institutions about the need to make strategic investments in, in, in leaders for the future and to, uh, you know, you're, you're going to spend a lot of money on hiring a chief development officer or a, chief, or a CEO of a foundation or a charity. You know, protect that investment. Uh, get them coaching support, executive management uh, uh, help around change management that they need. Give them a safe place to talk about difficult issues uh, and have powerful conversations about how the organization could be. So. Uh, you know, I, I like to spend a lot of time in, in that space, and uh, as, do, as do my colleagues here at the Offit Group. Uh, uh, anyone who wants to talk to us, please contact us. Our contact information is on our website uh, uh, at com. And uh, for those of you who are interested in uh, social impact investing, uh, uh, we're in a partnership with uh, Ernst & Young, Boston Consulting Group and a few others uh, uh, at a project called LEAP, the PICO Center for Social Impact, and uh, uh, some of us, some of you will know that uh, we were involved in the uh, in the Google project last year, which invested uh, you know five million dollars in, in innovation and leadership in the sector. So, uh, I encourage people to check that out, and uh, uh, if they have cool ideas that uh, have high potential. Uh, to be in touch with uh, the people in that program as well. Thank you, Nicholas. I've been following that program. It's a fantastic program. I'm so glad you were involved. Thanks again for, for sharing that. Yvonne, we were so happy to have you on this uh, podcast. Uh, I know you probably wondered why we we might invite uh, a, a, chari- a charity tax uh, specialist, but uh, you've been fantastic, and so I want to give you an opportunity to share with us what's important to you and what's going on. Thank you. I think I was very happy to be able to participate, and I'm amazed uh, that I, uh, you know, ideas of of my experience was was, was helpful. But I, I just I just say fundraisers, you know, out there they need to puff up their chests and and be the leaders that they are already. And they're professionals, just like legal professionals, just like accounting professionals. And professionals, you know, who have knowledge and experience, uh, find a way to, you know, make that infiltrate the organization and in the decision making. So if you're at the boardroom table as a professional fundraiser, then be bold at the boardroom table. If you're at the senior management level, you know, be bold at that level and, uh, just uh, advocate for what the donors that you meet every day want to be advocated. And uh, as far as I'm in my profession, my practice, I work with boards trying to, you know, t- talk about this kind of message, I guess, in the governance sense and uh, work with fundraisers and, you know, give them inspiration, you know, to be who they can be. And, you know, writing on all sorts of topics in this area, forward-looking for sure, artificial intelligence really excites me in in this whole charitable sector. And I can be reached at um, my firm, my professional email is yshenyeh at drache.ca or just Google Yvonne Chenier, charity lawyer. There you go. Thank you very much. Thanks, Yvonne. Um, Arla. 
What do you have to share with us? What's important and going on in your world? Well, I think I'm a lot more at the on the ground level um, in relation to moving forward agendas and uh, really excited about uh, an announcement that will be made tomorrow and uh, that will be in the um, the whole mental health um, realm in uh, something that four months ago uh, we were notified that was not going to happen after six months of working on an initiative and with donor support, one strong philanthropist and our foundation where we've been able to change uh, the decision of the government and we'll be actually opening a new mental health assessment unit and uh, that's been a lot of hard work but bold and uh, uh, really focused work to move the decision back to where it should have been. So, um, you know, at the ground level, bringing people together, collaboration, doing what's right, not letting an answer of no, this isn't a priority, make that difference. And uh, we were successful, and in four months, our hospital will effectively change how mental health patients are seen in our emergency department. So it's that been an exciting four-month ride, but it, it took a lot awesome. of bold leadership. That is the power of philanthropy uh, it in, is. in a nutshell. And I have seen that, uh, you know, doing the weekly recap that I do for the sector, um, I, the trends I see in where philanthropy can really move the needle is, is, is just awesome. So thanks for sharing that, Arla. Um, thank, thank you, you all. Uh, uh, with, with that, uh, the gift of another brain trust philanthropy powered by Betrayo has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you will join us again next month when our topic will be Canada's new official body for fundraising, the AFP Canada Board of Directors. Joining us then will be Scott Dexhammer, Brad Jacobs, and Krishan Mehta. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.